Hi, and welcome back to the final episode of the fact and the end of the, uh, thank you for joining us here at Tenet. No, I'm just kidding. This is uh, the FX show podcast. I'm Mike Seymour. This week on the show, we are unwinding, undoing, and uh, looking back at Tenet, which I'm incredibly enthusiastic to do. Uh, joining me is Matt Wallen. How are you, Matt? I'm really good. And I too am equally excited to, after a year of talking about it, to finally, almost a year, I guess to finally get a chance to talk about this one. And thank you for joining us, Jason Diamond. It's been a pleasure. Uh, yeah, I was previously excited about doing Tenet, and then, then, I wa- then I am, and then I was, and now I am, and then I was, and you know, you see where I'm going with this. Yeah, no, but all joking aside, I've been bugging you guys to do this for forever, haven't I? Yeah. Yeah, the no, reason, you, the you, reason you, have, stop it. you have movie theaters in the future. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. So we, so just to be clear, if you don't, if you're not a regular listener, I'm obviously in Sydney. We had this film on 70 millimeter. I'm going to say months ago. I saw it twice in 70 millimeter. Uh, loved it to death. But of course, I was uh, just fortunate to be living in a place that wasn't suffering from COVID lockdown. Whereas you guys had to wait to see this. Uh, Matt, I think you saw it on your iWatch, didn't you? Yeah, I, I watched it uh, on my Apple Watch. Uh, it gave me that really big screen feeling. It it was it, I could totally see every IMAX frame. It's the way that that uh, Nolan intended you to watch it. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> okay, but all joking aside, again, clearly the filmmaker um, desperately wanted this scene by a cinematic audience in a cinematic environment, and that alone is its own sort of sub story. We might get to later about whether or not it was a good idea that he did that. But just for completeness. Jason, where did you actually see the film? I saw the film at home on Tuesday when it came out on, uh, you know, streaming or digital services. I saw it on on uh, Apple uh, TV or the TV app in 4K Dolby Vision on my 65-inch okay. 4K Dolby Vision television. And I, I should say, good. I did actually watch it in the same way on Tuesday. 4K Dolby Vision on the from the Apple TV app, which I where I bought the movie, but on my 50 inch television <laughs> here at my house. So and I put on <laughs> yeah. I put on my headphones and everything. So I was oh, really? totally like I tried to immerse myself as much as I could in a theatrical like experience at home. So, so I have like a I have like a play base under my TV that replicates the Atmos as much as it can. Yeah. yeah, I, I actually believe that to be a... just for fun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I I actually believe that that is a pretty valid way to watch a movie. Personally, yeah. I I'm not obsessed. But had that being said, it was lovely to see it in a big old fashioned cinema oh, with a big throw. We even had an organist up the front, and then the organ descends into the stage and the curtains, and it was just uh, terribly old school. And yet, I, I'd like to start by asking you guys. Did you have any audio issues, Matt, with, say, uh, the dialogue? Because the first time I saw the film, and don't forget, not many people had seen it when I saw it, I was like, I must be going deaf. And then I went, no, no, it must have been a problem with the projection. And I went again a second time and I took my daughter, who's like 20, 22, and she's like obviously not suffering from old age like I am. And she was like, what the heck's wrong with the audio? And we decided that it was the mix. And then about a month after that, it started appearing on the net. Matt, did you find at home there were any audio dialogue issues? So I I actually had read those stories about the audio mix. And I was really curious. I know that uh, 
I think it, I had even read that Nolan had said that uh, that was his intent, right? And that people were being so conservative about their uh, sense of uh, what makes for a good sound mix, right? That you should be able to hear the dialogue and whatever. However, I will say I listen to them in my, like I have a pair of wireless headphones that I can, you know, just Bluetooth, whatever, hook up to my television. And it's, you know, noise canceling. It's good sound. Like there were moments where the musical mix, the mix of the music was much more elevated and there's kind of a, a buzzing kind of the score is kind of electronic in places. And so there's this kind of buzzing electronic sound. However, there was not a moment in the mix where I couldn't hear the voices other than I think at one or two points, if I'm not mistaken in the opening scene in the opera house or the, the concert hall, whatever it was, I think there's a couple places where the audio is, intentionally obscured because it's not about having that sort of diegetic, you know, vocal audio. It really is about having the musical score be dominant. And it's what's being said by some of the masked uh, terrorists, I think, in that sure. scene is is irrelevant, right? So it's more about creating a certain kind of theatrical, or not theatrical, but like a cinematic experience within the moment. And so that was not distracting. But over the rest of the film, there were not any moments, at least for me, where the audio was obscured in the way that I was worried about. So Jason, uh, the one section that was noticeable for me was the pivotal moment, which we'll get to obviously, where um, uh, there's the shooting either side of the reversal machine and some of the dialogues backwards, some of it's forwards. And during that sequence, I was really straining to hear some of the dialogue that was being said, even when it was English forwards, just as an example, because I do agree with you, Matt, there's, there's, and, and, you know, people have said this to me, like, you don't expect to not have things fall off into the black. So why don't you expect to have audio fall off? But for me, I was like, this seems plot significant and I can't understand what they're saying. I, I agree. I've had this problem with Nolan for a couple movies, I think. Certainly the all the hubbub around Bane in in the last Batman movie was, you know, maybe the, 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 the yeah. Yeah, it was the was the most egregious right out of the gate. But I did find that I'm all for like what Matt was saying, where what they're saying, like if a, you know, in a a non lead character that whose dialogue is not 100% plot specific is yelling at someone through a mask because they're in a raid and it's an emotional um, uh, line uh, delivery, not a diegetic delivery. No, no, no issue. And to your, to your example of falling off, you know, similar to, to color, I get, you know, I'm all for it. And I'm all for the moments where the music just totally obscure, like it obviously intentionally obscures, uh, the intensity of the music is intentionally obscured, um, obscuring the dialogue. However, yes, to the scene you pointed out, Mike, and a bunch of scenes, there's some scenes where the the lead um, actress was saying some things and I was like, what? Like, and I, I'm partially hard of hearing from being in rock bands and what have you, but like, I'm, it's pretty, I can still hear pretty well. And I'm sitting eight feet from my speaker, 10 feet from my speaker, and it's loud. And there's still, I, I find that there's mix issues and I would not credit that to the mix engineer. That's obviously a Nolan choice. Yeah. Um, the mix sounds good, 
overall, but the dialogue, some it, it just gets lost at times. And especially in a movie like this, in that pivotal scene where they're talking back and forth, like, I don't know if he want if he's doing it to make you have to watch it a few times uh, for other reasons, because, you know, the plot's complicated or the, you know, what have you. I don't know, but it's it's a fine line, right? Because you don't want to blow the scene out, out of the just, movie. It took me out agreed. of the movie. No, you're because like, you're, you're you're leaning. You're like, and what? I'm looking at the person next to me, going, "What did he say? What was that?" Because it seemed important, right? Like it seemed like yeah. we'd reached mm -hmm. a, a critical point in the plot, and there was dialogue going backwards, so you had to pay attention in case you know you were sort of piecing together the logic. Yeah. Anyway. Okay, so this isn't the audio. I would liken show. it to I I would liken that scene to our previous movie we did Dune when the first stage navigator has the translator in front of his face. Right, he's right. talking. You don't know what he's saying, and then the English comes out, and it's similar to this. Kenneth Branagh's talking, and you don't know what he's saying because it's backwards, and then you hear the English. Right. Yeah. That's okay, a good so, point. I mean, uh, that so, does become a significant like train in the audio. Con component is that sort of that back masking and forward masking like with the you don't know it in the first part of the movie when you're first watching you're like what's going on and you but you discover yeah. that in the secondary portion of the film where mm -hmm. some of those scenes are replayed the second time and we see them now yeah. from the other point of view and we hear them from the other point of view but that first time we see them they may be intentionally obscured for that very reason right. because it's fine. sort of a reveal yeah. right Mm -hmm. So okay, well, look, we're obviously going to here to talk about the visual effects, and we'll get to that <laughs> in one second. But the other big thing out of it is when I first saw the film, there were a couple of sequences that I was literally like, I thought they were three people. Hang on, isn't there meant to only be two at this point? So I spent a lot of time pondering the film. I don't unlike the audio. I didn't find this objectionable. It was more like. I had that great post-film discussion with the people that I was with, with like, oh, I see what was happening. Oh, yeah. Like, like I got it. I got the film, obviously. Uh, but then there were sort of like layers to it that I was sort of, when I thought about it, kind of made more sense. Um, I'll give you one example just by way of illustration. When uh, he meets the, 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 uh, the unnamed hero of our film, um, meets uh, in the cafe, with Nolan's uh, proverbial lucky actor, um, Sir Michael Caine, uh, that scene, uh, they're discussing an explosion in Russia, which of course is the scene at the end of the film. Now, at the moment that I saw that and right up until I got outside the cinema and we started discussing it, it just didn't occur to me that that's what they were discussing. So I don't find that frustrating. I find that like a really rich experience that you know gives the audience credit that somebody didn't say, you know, when we were talking in the cafe, that was this, you know, uh, so I, I thought that was terrific. But what about you guys? Uh, Matt, did you find any of the plot confusing to the point of annoying or was it just very complex that sort of you liked savoring later? Well, I, I've only seen it once, right? So I haven't watched it a second time. I think I will watch it a second time because I know my son wants to watch it too. And I think he'd, he'd enjoy it. He's He enjoyed, certainly he really liked uh, Dunkirk a lot. So I think he'll be up for this mm. one. But um, you know, I I I think those things were in the moment in the movie. There are elements, and we can maybe get into this a little bit more. It's not quite what you're asking, but there are things that were um, 
difficult for me as a film watcher. But those particular things that you're describing, those kind of um, elliptical kind of reveals, I actually found those to be really exciting. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, and I'm sure many uh, of our listeners are too, but the Chris Marker, uh, the 1962 Chris Marker film La Jetée, which is the film that's made with all um, still photographs except for one sequence of a woman blinking, right? Uh, and um, I thought the the reveal of like the Elizabeth Debicki character who sees herself dive into the water at the end, where previously she's speaking of being jealous of this woman that she thinks is in this. Uh, kind of alternate relationship with her mm-hmm. kind of uh, evil husband, the uh, uh, Kenneth Branagh character. But I felt I felt like those moments were really poignant and and they worked well. It was reminiscent of that German television series Dark. I don't know if you guys have seen that or the J.K. Simmons series Counterpart. I think right. Um, there are elements of those kind of elliptical narrative components yeah. that Primer. once they are revealed. Yeah, Primer is another great example. Like when those elliptical narrative moments are revealed, I found those to be really powerful and profound. And they're very, they speak very much to the kinds of things that you can do in cinema, right? That cinema is about time in a way and like taking moments in time and stretching them out and lengthening a moment in time through the advent of slow motion and editorial conceits or whatever, or compressing time. And I think that those aspects of like play in cinema as an art form are are really great and those work really well within the context of this film on a mechanical level jason was the plot engaging and making you lean into it or was it sort of you sitting back going i'm completely lost no i mean i i got it um my problem (laughs) which everybody knows is just my issue with Nolan's exposition in the first 45 minutes. I mean, I timed it that there's the, there's the, the opening scene, which is awesome. And then there's like 40 minutes of just people talking and talking, 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 talking. Now in, in retrospect, sure. Some of that talking has elliptical moments, but they're so buried in stuff to me. Now I haven't only seen it once. So I have to say, with all fairness, if I saw it again, it's highly possible that a bunch of that exposition, you know, targets other things. However, it should work once. It should work in the first time. The second yeah. time should be a bonus. Like the sixth sense works the first time. You don't have to know he's dead. The second time is like just icing on the cake to watch a whole nother movie, right? And uh, it's, I I thought the plot is very, it's very smart. It's super interesting. And as you get into it, you it unfolds. But I, I have a very, very hard time with people just talking in a in a in a movie with a filmmaker who's incredibly gifted as a filmmaker and is and is a good writer when he focuses and has basically an unlimited budget for all intents and purposes from from a from a that height of a of a budget that he shouldn't have to write his way out of stuff and he could yeah. show a lot of it. 
Okay, we're just, just going my... to uh, we're just gonna have to disagree on this because if it was an Aaron Sorkin film, the entire film would just be talking and like nothing would happen. But <laughs> so, yeah, but but that's not this. But that's a totally different movie. And argue, I would argue that like Molly's Game, which has some action and whatever, which Sorkin wrote and directed, his exposition has movement, and and is very deep, and and is is specific to character. Nolan's exposition at times feels like literally just p- characters asking each other questions to get I can information see, I can out. see Matt wants to weigh in on yeah. this one. Yeah, I think, I think Jason's hitting on something that I think is really an important distinction that I would want to make about this movie too. Like, you know, is it technically uh, really impressive? Of course. Uh, I think there are issues though with it as a movie. Um, I think it's, there are many like clever moments that are, you know, uh, cleverly strung together within the context of the screenplay, but I don't know that I walked away from it feeling like it added up to anything with any real profundity, right? There's, it's an emotionless narrative. There's no character with whom, uh, I had, you, you're not given an opportunity to have an, an, an emotional, um, identification with any character in the film, John David Washington looks great in the movie. And I think he's a great actor, but I think he's given so little to do in this, that he delivers a performance in terms of his delivery of his lines and stuff that is so stilted and so stiff. It's a very stylistic performance. The only character that has any emotion is the Elizabeth Debicki character. But I would argue her emotion is just, she's the damsel in distress. She's sort of relegated to this very, cliched kind of non uh, emotive role. And then we get this kind of psychotic emotion from uh, Kenneth Branagh, the, the most, the best actor in the movie, I think in terms of the portrayal and how he comes across is the, um, what's his name? The twilight guy. Um, Neil. Pat- Robert Pattinson. Neil. Yeah. yeah. And, but he's not in the movie he's that great. much really, but he's, oh, he's, but he's a, right. but no, he's great, but he's not in the movie as much. And so I, I, I kind of feel like the, the thing that's missing is the thing that I think would really make this movie work on such on a higher plane, which is to give the audience, uh, you know, we we know that we have the protagonist who's referred to as the protagonist, yeah. but it starts to feel almost kind of mechanistic in a way. Some of the um, set pieces moving from set piece to set piece and the plot machinations are so complex that there's no room for it to breathe or to breathe any emotion into any characters that we can really sink our teeth into and identify with and okay, but here's, be rooting here's for. Here's the thing. So so my, let me use an analogy and mix a bunch of metaphors. I think the film is super <laughs> interesting. It's not a greatest hits film. So a lot of films lately have been like like a Star Wars film where it's basically a greatest hits, right? And well, sure, in the yeah. moment of seeing it, you kind of go, this is awesome, but it doesn't have a long shelf life. Then yeah. there are films that are play for safety and you're like, this is really great. But in reality, it doesn't it doesn't try very hard. And then, and Jason, I'm going to lean on you here. This though, haven't you gone to those concerts where an artist has just not done what you expected? And to a certain extent, you feel a little disappointed that you didn't get the album tracks the way they were on the album. But then you kind of go, look, I kind of prefer the album, but I really appreciated that they were trying really hard to give me something. They weren't phoning it in. And yeah, some of it didn't work, but you know what? Like, yeah. wow, what an experience. As opposed to, it all worked and it all just sounded kind of like it did on the record. A hundred percent. And to Matt's point, 
when I'm critic when I say anything critical throughout this whole show, I am not criticizing the execution, the craftsmanship, sure. or anything, the acting. Everyone's delivering what they've been given. But the script, in my estimation, yep. is flawed. Therefore, there are the film itself is flawed, but not at an execution level. You know, we'll place that on but, on Nolan, okay. not on the craftsman. But 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 yes, I'm all for people trying. I would much rather Christopher Nolan try and do this, and some people like it, some people not, and try to do something on that scale because it's usually not at that budget level. People are allowed to do something that could fail, and so yeah. I applaud it 100. percent It doesn't mean I have to like it, but yeah. I I respect it. And I, I, here's what I'll say. I'll, I will give you the review my friend gave me of Under the Skin before I saw it that made me want to see it. He said, I said, what did you think of the movie? Because I'm interested. And he goes, I didn't hate it and I didn't love it, but I respect the shit out of it. And, okay. and that's sort of what I would put on this movie is exactly that. Can I just say, though, that that you criticize the plot, I uh, sorry, the, the script, but can I just say that there are aspects of the script that you're criticizing to do with dialogue and character development and whatever my opinion is on that. But you have to say it's a it's an incredibly crafted plot because try as you yeah. may, this is the most convoluted piece of plotting. And I am so sick of going to movies where the writers just magically get themselves out of a problem. A million what percent. I, what I like is things like Knives Out where you go, you know what? Somebody spent a long time on this because it would have been obvious to finish the plot here or finish it there or for that to be the case or the whole thing to be a dream. And they didn't do that. They actually solved the problem. <laughs> yeah, it's original. I, I, you you won't want to hear this, but I thought Knives Out was was entertaining, but it didn't blow me away. And I yeah, love no, Ryan Johnson. No, but, I agree. But, it, but at least the plot didn't just- I refuse just... to see it because I don't like Ryan Johnson. Okay. <laughs> We're not here for that film. There's one last last question, right? And and I'm going to hit yeah. Matt with this one. Was Neil, the little boy at the end of the film, her son? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I I was I I think he was. Yeah. And I think that's that's interesting and that adds uh, another fun layer to the onion to going back and watching it again. So I asked <laughs> Andrew Jackson, the visual effects supervisor of the yeah, film, I heard who that. sat yeah. with Nolan. And I said, did he? And he was like, no, no, that never came up. No, I don't think so. So that, you I, know why? But then because, that's the whole thing about if art. If Nolan isn't admitted it, it yeah, if Nolan admitted that, then it would basically make this movie Terminator. Yeah. <laughs> He's Kyle okay, Reese. But I have there's to the read thing, one, isn't it? Like the artist, go on. I just want to read one quote that I loved. I, I did a little digging after um, watching the movie. And then I have my own thing that we can talk about later if you guys want about. One thing I thought about while I was watching the movie as I'm trying to sort of unpack the mind of uh, Christopher Nolan as best I can, but there's a quote that I read. I, I don't know if it was in the New York Times or if it was on like The Verge or something. It was a review and I, this line I just thought was so good. I think I emailed it to uh, Jason if I didn't text it to you too, um, uh, Mike, but it, it says, but Nolan is by several exploding football fields, the foremost auteur of the intellectual, which combines popcorn dropping visual <laughs> ingenuity with all the sedate satisfactions of a medium grade Sudoku. <laughs> and I thought that was such a wow. great, like, like kind of it's snarky, 
but it's also such a like really succinct uh summation. I, I will pay that. In fact, in fact, if you send me that, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, okay, I'll send it to you. <laughs> okay, so so there are so many interesting plot points in this. By the way, the point where I got super confused the first time I saw it is when they have the um aircraft attack, which we're undoubtedly going to talk about, where they actually run a mm-hmm. 747 into a building. When they're in the first pass of that, I thought that at some point there were three other people that they were battling. And mm. and only when I saw the film the second time, having been very confused by that scene, I managed to trace on screen what was happening. There were, in fact, multiple people at that point in time, but not, as I read it, as being three individuals that were different. There were, I think Andrew calculated how many actual people there were from forward versions and past. And then the second problem I had in the first time I saw it, which was solved the second time, was I hadn't quite realized the the device, which is the only kind of conceit, I think, from a plot point of view, which is them getting in the container that's being shipped back after she's um, hurt. That allows a huge amount of time to go by because nobody speeds up time. They just reverse it. And that them being out of action, but still in the world, but inside the container solved a huge amount of problems. And normally in a film, if you want to get from here to there, like I remember in the film, in the TV show 24, he'd be like, I'd get from one side of LA to the other in five minutes. I'm like, I can't get anywhere yeah. in LA in under an hour, right? The whole episode <laughs> so would be yeah. him sitting in traffic. So uh, I was sort of like, when I first saw it, I thought, oh, that's cute. They've actually taken time to move somewhere. Isn't that a nice thing? And then I realized later, oh, actually, that was a super clever way of solving a bunch of mm-hmm. plot points. Um, Which, by the way, brings up a question about how, if that's the way that they, quote, time travel, even though it's not time travel, it's just in reverse, that if Neil is indeed the kid, he's literally spent how many years just sitting in a room going backwards or whatever he's doing, if that's, you know what I mean? Yes. If he's indeed whatever. And also if... If the character in the beginning in the opera house that helps him, that has the reversed bullet or whatever, that doesn't, you don't see the face, but has a similar outfit as they do in the middle means that the main character or one of them went back even further. Oh, that definitely is Neil. That that is Neil's character. Yeah. Yeah, But the baby one, the the son one is, I think, speculation by eager fans. Yeah. Well, I mean, the shot, I mean- it's not, but I mean, you you could say that, but it's like, it's like you know, they're literally cutting as I mean, it's completely set up for you to think that intentionally, whether it is him or not. Someone said maybe the editor put that together and was like, eh, and they were like, well, that's cool, or maybe it was in the script. I don't know. That's but, a, that would be a know. nod too to the to the lajete structure too of the the boy seeing the death of the man on the jetty at the Orly airport in France. You know, it's like, that's the, that's the poignant elliptical narrative within the context of that story. And I do feel like that is a a really reverberating echo in the script, at least. Can I, can I switch gears to visual effects and say there's only one huge visual effect that I need to get off my, my, (laughs) uh, my thing. And that this is just absolutely for those of you that know me, a pure Mike Seymour problem, which is no one, <laughs> and I mean no one, can stop a yacht 
not a high performance uh, F50 <laughs> yacht, a sail GP yacht on a dime. No one can stop it full stop. Like these, put that thing in the water and there's a breath of wind and it's off. I have followed right. these things in speedboats trying to catch it up. And we've been like, I've, I walked off an inch shorter from the like spine thumpingness of our speedboat <laughs> trying to catch the bugger up. Um, one of them this week hit 47 knots. It's just unbelievable that somebody could be tossed overboard and you could stop one, yet alone it would just sit there while somebody dived overboard and picked somebody out of the water. Are those, are and, those technically like that that mechanistic movement of that? It's like a, a technically it's like a catamaran, right? But it's a hydrofoil. Yep. Is that correct? Hydrofoil. It lifts out of they, the water so that there's no drag of the hull on the water. But that um, technically they, is hydrofoil, right? That's what that is when it's elevated like that. Is that correct? Is that terminology-wise? Yes. Our sailing uh, yes, expert. though you can still have a hydrofoil where part of the main hull is in the water. Like it's you still can in the water, right? Like the just back the front. And, yeah. 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 Okay. But um, that is, uh, I mean, they're spectacular pieces of engineering and uh, incredibly dangerous. You have to wear body armor to be in them because uh, you have to have oxygen and people have died in them, um, both from impact and also just from being pinned underwater. So they are like just, you know, ridiculously good. Um, but uh, I loved seeing them in the movie, but really, you, you know, it was, you know, like that thing, somebody once said this to me, it's like the trouble with the world is that anything you know a lot about that appears in a movie like this, you go, oh, that's not quite right. But then everything else in the movie that you don't know about, you assume is correct. Do you know what I mean? Like I assume yeah. that everything <laughs> about the guns in this movie was accurate because I know nothing about guns. I yeah. fired one only in a you know rural setting for the purposes of uh, you know with with cattle and sheep. No recreational gun use. It's no the same thing as when use. like a yeah. a, a scene in a movie is nothing. set in your hometown, you know, and you're like, oh, that's cool. Like yeah. I know exactly where that is, and then they turn the corner, and you're like, well, wait a minute, how did they get across town so fast? Yeah. You know, it's like that's you know that's it's Die Hard, well. Die Hard Three. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Die really? Hard Three. Yeah. They shot they shot in my like on my street. <laughs> on the Upper West Side, and in your house, and, you know, I watch them. I watch them drive into the park and all this stuff, you know. But then you watch the movie in Manhattan, like blocks from where you watch them shoot it, and then you're like, "Wait, they just made a left on 96th Street, and they're coming across the park on 72nd. How does that happen?" You know. But, <laughs> but to your point, Mike, I know nothing about boats. So, like to me, I was like, "Well, maybe it, the boat was going. It seems like a high performance boat, and it made like a hard 180." That might be. It might have a little harsh. That was the. That was the. That was the. Oh, no, the one eighty you me. could almost. The fact that off, it would. Though. Right, but I don't know that. To me, that was like, wow, that's kind of tight. It's sitting there. I'm like, it's a boat. It floats. Like that's what they do, right? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. What, I don't. I don't know what. I don't know that. So, so to your point, there is a. It's all these niche, niche yeah. uh, verticals in the audience that are like, wait, and then. What? Just what is he? Uh, just a side note. What is he doing? The the um, John David Washington character the whole time he's like constantly cranking that crank in the forward. Like what is he cranking? So okay, so there's a number of things about a high performance yacht like that that you're adjusting. And this isn't um, a sailing podcast, but trust me when I say <laughs> that even if you come out to Sydney and you come out on my boat, you are going to be uh, coffee grinding on one of those uh, winches on my boat like crazy, Matt, <laughs> until your arms fall off. So, you know, just take it as red. Is he, he's like tightening is something a that goes sail hand in hand. or a jib or a... 
Well, th- this isn't a classic uh, yacht with uh, with loose, uh, you know, um, carbon fiber sails. This has got rigid uh, foils, but you have to you have to uh, adjust a whole lot of settings on those boats for how the the things that they're hydrofoiling on work, and uh, uh, and okay. on any high performance vehicle like that. So these actually have batteries. They used to have to have uh, guys doing a huge amount of uh, actual manual winching to pump the hydraulics, but a lot of this stuff is hydraulics driven. But anyway, enough of that. Suffice to say that other than that, I thought the visual effects were really, really good. Now, um, before I move off this point, there are visual effects in the yacht, which was what I was a long way of getting around to, which is that to actually pull that off, they had no mast and no... Um, rigid sails on many of those uh, H50s and then F50s. And then the um, sail GP guys did take some out sailing so they could film them. But then uh, a lot of the time they were just doing what you do with a car, which is effectively you put a car on a trailer to film somebody driving down the street. They were similarly towing the darn thing so that they could film it. Um, so it's a process but, yacht, basically. Process yacht, yeah. But they were actually doing some <laughs> real uh, sailing on them. And uh, and look, you know, I think that the thing about those things is it reminded me of the James Bond films. I don't know if you were a kid, mm-hmm. you ever want, there'd always be some new gadget in a James Bond film. And sometimes it'd yeah. be some new gadget that had only just come on the market and they'd grab it straight away and put it in their, uh, in their film before it was kind of commonplace. And I used to love that because there was some link to the real world that I felt like, yeah, mm-hmm. you could actually do that. So I, I thought that was, uh, that was great. Yeah, something so I, exotic I, like that, like a, yeah. a tiny, a tiny one person jet or like a you know a hang <laughs> and glider you would need to be jump. incredibly rich to have a sail gp yacht at your disposal yet alone a couple yeah. of them these well, are not cheap but the, that's what that's one of the things i do love about nolan is from the spectacle standpoint is he really goes out of his way to find locations and and um set pieces that you haven't seen like the in the beginning, the beginning. When he, yeah but Completely but even outside great. of that like, hey, you're the you're the reborn protagonist. You're going to go recuperate in a freaking like mid ocean, you know, uh, windmill for however long. You know, like like you have to get for your no character good reason. in one. Yeah, exactly for no good reason. But that's fine because it no, looks yeah. amazing, right? Spycraft. Yeah, yeah. I, I I love that about what he what he does because he really really like takes the time to figure those things out because i mean you might as well right i mean if he's going to go sit in a in a safe house somewhere who cares that's boring put him in the middle of the ocean you know in a windmill uh so you know to your point about the get like i i love that part about it you know what I mean? So somewhere listening to this, there's a guy who works on a uh, wind farm <laughs> in the uh, North Atlantic going, yeah. it was so fake because inside <laughs> yeah. that thing, they have a bed with a luxury, yeah. you know, dot, 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 and a jacuzzi. And, yeah. 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 Um, okay. So so Andrew Jackson, as we've said, was the visual effects supervisor on this. Uh, as we know, um, uh, Paul, who was one of the founders of, uh, of DNEG, was traditionally the person that did Nolan's films. And then on, um, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Dunkirk, Andrew took over, Andrew having previously done uh, Mad Max Fury Road as the kind of go-to guy for Nolan. And Andrew is the perfect guy to take that mantle because while Paul Franklin just is terrific and uh, you know he was uh, unavailable for his own reasons, not because he had any falling out with Nolan, um, Andrew is somebody that comes from a physical effects background 
and more than anyone I've ever met in visual effects, you'd have a, because I used to work with him, you have a meeting with him and he'd be like, yeah, so on the weekend I went out and I built this thing in my, uh, in my uh, shed and uh, we're going to film a watch and it's going to have this mechanism and it's going to spin like this and then we'll do that. And you'd be like, oh my God, I thought we were going to do some of this with 3D, but yeah, okay, that, that would be a great. Thing so he's could. like a key grip also? <laughs> it's just not even a key grip. Like, so, so Paul DeBevic came out to Sydney to do a talk and I knew uh, Paul back then and I knew Andrew and stuff and Andrew was now at Animal Logic. And I said, oh, we've got to go over to Animal Logic because they built a light stage. In other words, Paul DeBevic's famous, uh, you know, mm -hmm. spherical uh, thing. And Andrew did it by, get this, he got, you know, PVC piping tubes that you'd have for plumbing. Mm -hmm. Imagine he got that, cut it in sections, then just with a hacksaw, cut out little wedges in the ends of a tube, as in so that they would not be flat cuts, but sort of V cuts. And then with cable ties, cable tied the hexagonally kind of whatever that is, octa, whatever. Of Bucky the, ball, yeah. Yeah, so the <laughs> ball was built basically out of PVC tubing with a ton of really tight cable ties because cable ties have this property that they can pull two things together but don't require edges to be perfectly aligned or glued or whatever. And they're just, as you know, as any police person knows, uh, really hard to break. And so, uh, so this was just, you know, a monument to ingenuity. And, of course, he did it like for you know, sense on the dime. And then he just, you know, obviously put lights in it and stuff. But uh, Andrew actually was so embarrassed about the fact that they just built, <laughs> he just built one to see if he could test, you know, light theories about uh, polarized light that he sort of dismantled it and taken it out when Paul went to Animal Logic. And Paul was like all for it. He was like, he thought it was brilliant that someone had made a homemade one in there sort of over the weekend. But that's Andrew, right? Like, you know, no one else I know, you'd be like, well, we need to photograph a face. Well, I actually just built a light stage on the weekend um, because it right. would take me <laughs> a, a month of Sundays even to come up with any way of attaching It's so interesting. Did it angles. work really well without like the- Totally worked. Like, of, so the registration like imperfections well, weren't really an issue. But if you think about it, the, the lights um, on, a, on a huge ball that you would sit in, right? don't need to be accurate in a couple of mil of whether they're right. a bit to the left or a bit to the right. They just need to be evenly placed. And so by cutting all the lengths evenly, they, they was a- It gets know, in the zone. Yeah. yeah. It worked. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's Andrew, right? Like it's, <clears throat> it's, it's sort of like, um, I don't know if you guys are into agile project uh, stuff, but it's this idea that the minimum amount you have to do is the perfect amount to do if it works. Do you know what I mean? Like he would build yeah, something. I've lived my whole life. I've lived my whole life with that theory. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so Andrew and, and some other guys that worked with him on Mad Max, uh, pre-vised is the wrong word really, sort of worked out the whole film on in Maya, uh, but kept it as a Maya file. And so then on set, he had this laptop. And so if somebody said, hey, what's going on here? They could pull it up. And like Nolan is not a guy for previous, but they'd pull it up so they could discuss it. But because it was a Maya file that you could move anywhere in the shot. So if somebody said, I want to figure out to put a camera on the deck here, what would we see from that angle? They just immediately do it. And so, you know, anybody else like me would have rendered the shots out and had this, you know, really high production value previous to impress Nolan. But but uh, Andrew being Andrew was like, no, no, we'll just keep it as a Maya file and then we can just, you know, reposition the cameras to whatever happens on the day. And, right. And that thus, makes sense. it's the filmmaker's tool, not the filmmaker's kind of- uh, Vision. Well, it's, it's not restricting anyone, yeah. 
So anyway, yeah. uh, and look, I'm, maybe I'm getting some of these stories not quite right. Like a, there's also, it sounds like there's like a bit of a mechanical engineer maybe in there somewhere too. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and so uh, Andrew would have been the first to say, I'm sure, hey, let's just, if we can get a real plane and run it into a real building, that sounds like a good idea. And I would have been tempted to go, well, you know, if it doesn't work, how many planes have we got? You know, how many takes can we do? And, and, uh, mm-hmm. but I'm sure in addition to obviously Andrew, everybody else in every other department was on the top of their game. And, <laughs> and if yeah. you know, you've only got one 747 to blow up, I'm sure you make sure that the camera is rolling, you know, and I'm sure you make sure that. The, <laughs> <laughs> that the, yeah. Um, even though, did you I know mean, that it went wrong a bit? Uh, yeah, I, I, I listened to your, to your conversation with Andrew and I guess, I guess it went a little too far too fast. Yeah. yeah. And, and they had uh, to like rebuild a bit of the stuff they knocked down. Yeah. Which yeah. was a small price to pay for the thrill of kind of doing uh, yeah. it. Yeah. You'd, you'd rather do that and know you got it like in camera than, than say, oh, well, hey, look at this part of the set that never got damaged, but here's like $5 million worth of post work we have to do to make you know, to make it look right. Did you hear you know? the uh, standby props guy talking this week? He was talking about the fact that he was given the job of putting an explosive on the back of the 747 to blow out that bit so they could drop the gold bars out. And he's oh. like, you just don't often get the job of making a bomb for a 747, <laughs> which is yeah. going to go on a real 747 and really blow yeah. out part of the plane. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I love that sequence. I thought that sequence was great. And that's, I was, my brother hasn't seen it yet. And he was asking me how I liked it. And I, one of the things outside of the stuff I've already said previous on our recording here was that the one thing I do appreciate about Nolan is exactly what we're talking about. Like I said, there's a 747 that kind of has a thing and it's a real plane. You know, it's a real plane. It's just like when he flipped the truck in Batman, like he's flipping a semi, you know what I mean? Like you, and I, I, I personally love that because while I do love visual effects dearly, if I was Nolan, I'd be like, my first question would be like, can we get a real plane? Because if we can, that's what I want to do, right? Well, Cameron um, actually looked at seeing if they could build a replica of the Titanic that was to scale, as in one-to-one yeah. scale, and then sink <laughs> it for Titanic, and it would be cheaper than uh, yeah. and better. But the trouble was they had to get it off the bottom of the ocean. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's uh, interesting. Yeah, you can't I, do that on the shoreline. I did find myself, and this—I don't want to sound like a wet blanket at all to any of this conversation, but maybe that's my role sometimes. But um, I, I did find myself thinking on occasion that my 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 primary beef that I've identified already, which was sort of the the lack of emotion within the context of the narrative and and the lack of emotion within the individual sort of character, um, the developments of the individual characters within the context of the script. I, I had myself thinking like, I caught myself thinking with that 747 crash, knowing like the publicity around like that that's a real plane. And yes, it's very exciting to see, but I started thinking like, I, I wonder if when they're shooting with like IMAX cameras, like, I don't know if they shot the whole thing in IMAX or just key sequences in IMAX, the, the, the bulk and the heft of this enormous rig prevents uh, the filmmakers from establishing any degree of intimacy with characters, right? Because it becomes mm. about that filling that massive frame and then this mm. huge heavy piece of equipment. And so I, I found myself thinking that at one point, like 
I love all that action. I love all that, the real practical work that's being done in combination with the visual effects to create this spectacle. I love it. It's so entertaining and it's so fun to watch knowing that's true. However, I do find myself feeling some of the time like, well, spectacle is amazing, but it's so much more impactful when I care about these people who are in, in the jeopardy or in these dramatic moments. Can I, I, I'm going to go ahead and say that I don't think it's a limitation of the camera because you have movies like Lawrence of Arabia or the master. Uh, and I say that cause they were both shot on basically the same camera, um, that are 70 millimeter and how many 70 millimeter movies were shot in the sixties and seventies and, you know, this division and what have you, where there's, there are plenty organic yeah, and emotional. No, it's a, very it's, good a point. it's a, it's a filmmaker's choice and that's fine to that. And, and so to that point, uh, with, and I'll use, this is just back to my exposition thing in, in that sequence, I love the action part of the, of the sequence, but the, the lead up to it where they're describing what they're going to do to get in the plane. And then we watch them get in the plane and do it. Like I didn't need to hear the middle Eastern guy say, don't worry about it. You know, they didn't need to make a reference to, Oh, a middle Eastern guy is going to hijack a plane. How are you going to get away with it? And he's like, don't worry about it. I will like that whole exchange of dialogue was completely unnecessary to me. Now, if I watch the movie again, maybe there's some connection for this loop around thing. I doubt it, but I, you know, I get it. The guy's part of the team. I need like a line of dialogue. Hey, this is Billy. He's going to, he's going to hijack the plane for us. He's done it a lot. Great. Done. By, by the way, I really like that actor in yesterday, but anyway, uh, I would say Yeah, that. no, I mean. Oh, right. That's um, what he was from. Yeah. Can I just say though, that like getting back to my James Bond thing, like when I was yeah. a kid, I remember yeah. watching a James Bond film at the end of the film, I think there was a Mercedes on the top of a very, very big cliff in the middle of friggin' nowhere. And Bond walks up and kicks it off the cliff and this Mercedes drops down. And I remember as a kid just being awestruck that A, they would waste a Mercedes. B, <laughs> how did they get the Mercedes up on the cliff? And then why did it like matter that they did this? But completely obsessed with the fact that they'd really kicked a Mercedes off a cliff, right? And then I remember seeing a James Bond film many years later where uh, they had a giant wave tsunami thing and, and uh James Bond parasails on the back or surfs on the back of a car door down the side of this tsunami while parasailing. And it was all digital. And I yeah. hated it. I just yeah. despised it. <laughs> because if James is going to do something, and by the way, James Bond doesn't have a lot of lines and a lot of character development and certainly a lot of uh, <laughs> nuanced uh, emotional arc. But if he's going to do true. something, it was so fun that they actually did it. You know what I mean? Now, I do think that the Bond films got into a problem where they would go, hey, now we've got a set piece, shut down for story, let's just have the set piece, and when it's over, we'll get back to it, which I didn't think this film fell into as a problem. But, no. um, but uh, that doing it for real, like it's a great selling point, uh, you know, which obviously the PR department latched onto. But also, you know, it just genuinely is when you look at it, you go, when the, okay, look at this way. After the plane, don't you like look at the shot where they're uh, inverse bungee jumping up the side of the building and just say to yourself, mm -hmm. okay, how much of that is real? Because I've got a feeling that must be a lot of it, right? Um, and if they did that, who the freak thought that was a good idea? And, you know, like, yeah. okay, it's probably stuntman, <laughs> but bloody hell. 
See, I thought that was a great sequence, but when she when he got on the roof and talked to the lady, it was boring. Like he just jumps up there, she has no idea who he is, and then they just have have she just tells him all this shit. She just (laughs) tells him everything. And he's like, Well, I mean, she's like, Oh, well, I mean, you did somehow just fly up to my roof. I guess you don't have an exit strategy. And he's like, No, I do. And you're like, Oh, okay, no tension here. You know, like uh all right. Hey, um but Let's anyway. The sequence was fantastic. Okay, let's discuss you know, the last standpoint. ten minutes because, for a start, I for one was uh, the one. The thing that I wanted to say to you guys before you'd seen the film is how obvious it was to me, in retrospect, how it was being hidden in plain sight that the last ten minutes of the film is tenant backwards and forwards, right? And so mm-hmm. I just loved that the last ten minutes of the film is tenant. Yeah, and and it was going both ways, and it was mind-numbingly complicated. Uh, and from a visual effects standpoint, they pulled off some crackers. And my favorite shot is the building that blows up and then it implodes uh, mm-hmm. the same building. I was just like, that just to me was everything. There is a couple of bits in that whole end of sequence that I still quite haven't got my head around. I'm sure if somebody drew graphs and diagrams and whiteboarded it, I could get it there. But um Nevertheless, the idea that you've got all these people like fighting all these people that have been fighting with people that they're fighting, I mm-hmm. I do have a slight plot problem in like, who are the people they're fighting against again? Because the first time I saw it, I was like, I get that we need to fight some people. I'm not quite sure who they're fighting. I get that we've got two teams fighting the people that we're meant to be fighting. I'm not quite sure why the people that are fighting them are fighting them or even if they know why they're fighting them. I don't know why they're fighting. But hey, it's fun. I'm just going to sit back and enjoy the the. the yeah, it was fight. almost set up like it's like a war game or something, and we're going to have this yeah. war game, and it's part of this experiment. And but then it's this real fight, and then are they fighting against themselves, or are they actually two different teams? And there were a couple of things in there that well, there were, were really three interesting. Teams. Or three teams, right? There's a couple of things that are really interesting. It, it made me think of, um, you know, the the uh, we were talking about this last week, Twin Peaks and the Red Room. You know how they would talk uh, backwards and play it forwards, mm-hmm. and there's some shots in that fight sequence at the end, that big battle sequence, where you can tell that there are actors like in the midground or in the distance who are, I believe, running slowly backwards. And so when the when it's playing back and you see them running forward, in the way that it's comped and edited together, which is brilliant. I mean, it's very effective, but you can tell that they're actually not going in the right direction. The biggest question I had, though, is, and I don't understand this part, and maybe you can explain this to me. Why do those big, like the Chinook uh, helicopters, the sort of twin rotor helicopters, which are essentially cargo troop carrying helicopters, why are they flying empty but carrying color coded uh, shipping containers full of people? Like, <laughs> that was so weird. Like, what? <laughs> What was that all about? That just didn't make any it sense. Looked good. Did it? <laughs> well, but don't uh, obviously they use these shipping containers to let people like go backwards in time or something. Oh, so, I don't know. I'm, yeah, but why but couldn't you, the backwards in time people have got into the Chinooks? Yeah, and had, and had, like, got out and had it Chinooks. be encased in like a I plastic sheath or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I don't um, know, whatever. My question, wait, my question was when he moves backwards, why do they have to wear oxygen? Is it because is it because they're is it because they're breathing only CO2? Because everyone's no, the, breathing out? No, the air, it, I mean, the, air is, the air is inverted. It's entropy or something. They, yeah, they try entropy. to explain it through the, the entropy 
It's it's the same reason that that he doesn't burn to death in the car, right? He nearly freezes yeah. to death. Right. I guess. Yeah. No, I got that part, but I guess that makes sense. Yeah. But see, I, here's the thing. He spent all the time with Michael Caine telling him that he needs better suits, but he didn't take the time to explain the really complicated shit. But it you was Michael Caine. Like, that's not where like, the exposition Michael Caine went. Is, is allowed to have any time I, on screen he wants. Look, if I fashion if, is pretty complicated for some people. If <laughs> if I had Michael Caine on speed dial, he'd be in every one of my movies too. I'm not, you know, I'm not criticizing using Michael Caine. I'm just my, saying my cocaine. You know, yeah. I've got I'd to have, say, I'd have Michael, I'd have Michael Caine like as a as like yeah. a waiter in a diner for twenty seconds just because I could. You know what I mean? But being like, a big Scar fan from the eighties and nineties, I uh, there was a uh, "My Name Is Michael Caine" song which I used to love. Um, but I've got to say, <laughs> the thing about the thing about this film, right, is that like, yeah, okay, well, but any film we can like pick it, you know, like an individual scene like that. But but getting back to the visual effects of this sequence, they. The mind-numbing editorial job of putting that mm, sucker yes. together. I mean, yes. I, like, and it wasn't all, to your point, Matt, comped, comped. Like, it wasn't like every bit was a separate element and they're all yeah. digital people and they were just animated in 3D and put in there. This was loads of people learning to act, to run backwards, to not try and look like they're running mm -hmm. forwards, backwards when they're doing it. And the main lead actor, the protagonist, being very good at doing exactly the same thing and using on a per shot basis. Like it wasn't like they had a formula for solving this and then they just applied it. Like every shot was like, it seemed to me like its own jigsaw puzzle. Um, I just yeah, can't. No, that, I think it's really think effective was... in, in the sequences where like when they first go back uh, and they're on the... It's, I can't remember the name of the boat, but it's like a lar it's like a rescue boat. And the camera is, I believe, helicoptering towards the boat. And there's some of the windmills, I think, are in the background. And the boat is going backwards, but we see yep. uh, he's doing like pull-ups or something on the boat. It's one of the ones that yep. I think that was in the trailer too. But I think some of those shots are really, they're very, very effective. And the, the intimacy of some of the fight, the close-up fight sequences where we have mm -hmm. uh, sort of Two, one person moving in a sort of positive gravity kind of direction and the other person yep. inverted moving in an inverse kind of gravitational scenario. Those are really arresting visually because they're, they're difficult to wrap your head around. And the one where they're fighting sort of near the, <laughs> like the lazy Susans, whatever the, the turnstiles or the whatever. The art gallery, the, one, mm -hmm. the art gallery, that one, uh, sorry, the art depository place. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, yeah. that fight when we see it the first time and there's the part where he's it i actually i guessed you know that it was the john david washington because it's his face is totally covered yeah but where he's he's on his back and he's like crabbing forward or backward in this very strange fashion when you first see that it's like oh that is that is just weird like what the hell am i looking at it's like watching something out of the exorcist mm -hmm. or something but then when we see it the second time where now the motion is is inverted and we see the the ma the, yep. the maskless uh, actor back sort of inverted and the other guy going forward, mm -hmm. that it's so interesting, both the execution of that and the because because you you register it as the same fight. I don't know if it is the same fight. I don't know if it could be the same fight, but it's it's very from a visual effects standpoint, 
it's so well, perfectly executed that I feel like those are the things that to me worked really well. I think there are great moments in that big battle at the end, but I actually feel like it's it's a little bit less successful because of the total chaos of it than uh, maybe some of those more intimate moments. Also, from a camera perspective, the first time you see it, they're inside the building fighting to move towards the plane. And in the second time you see it, the camera positions on the other side, right? right? And you're in the you're on the plane side moving into the building. So you see the fight from two different, it's the same fight, but the camera's on different sides of the fight in the two times you see it. So not only does it feel different, but the same, it, 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 it gives you that whole, basically, it, uh, the whole movie is based around shot, reverse shot, right? Except actual reverse, not turning the camera but, around. But for but anyone who's that, ever set up an interview and gone, wait, should the eye line be to the right or the left oh, in this? God, I, oh yeah, Jesus. You know what I mean? And like, we go, <laughs> wait a second, let me think about this for a second. And I'm just thinking yeah. to myself, I have, I'm sure I've got it wrong, but I normally get it right. But it takes me like a beat or two to work out. No, no. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is the reversal of that. So you should be looking to the left, yeah. camera left. Yeah, and 180, Blah, blah, blah. Over, yeah, yeah. let's not cross the line. And then you get to this level and it's like, it's like going, you know what? I just ran upstairs to get my book from my bedside table. So now I think I'm, I'm well and truly versed to be able to discuss a marathon. You know what I mean? Like an actual right. <laughs> Olympic marathon. <laughs> like, yeah, no. no, I mean, yeah, no, again, that the, to your point, uh, Mike, the, and this would be probably the most fun sequence to, to direct and for everyone, you know, involved to do because it's not a formula shooting both directions of that. You have to say, okay, this part is a shot. We're going to shoot and, and project in reverse, right. In the timeline yeah. uh, of the edit, because we need that motion, but this shot, you're just going to act like you're playing backwards, but this one's going to be, you know, like that editorial puzzle of putting that together twice and have it feel different and just as exciting and have new information revealed in both versions yeah. of that fight. I mean, that's, and, it is, and can it we is just have a shout out very... to the first AD? Cause like I've been on set with first oh, ADs God. and occasionally <laughs> I've been a first AD and when I'm a first AD, I always have like a white big board and I stick up, you know, storyboard frames and I cross mm -hmm. them off with a text because I'm not clever enough to remember that I've got everything before I like <laughs> break the set and move everybody on. And I just can't begin to imagine, okay, we're standing in this location. We, clearly, they're going to film the bit that's at the early part of the film at the same time from terms of a production yeah. schedule as they film the end stuff, right? Um, you don't smash a building with a plane, you know, two planes yeah. <laughs> just so you could get it in. So so you've done that. So you're going, okay, so now we've got to shoot this bit of corridor, but now we're shooting the stuff that happens like an hour later in the film from the yeah. other point of view, from the other thing in the other reversal to get the other mm -hmm. shot for the other bit and not just oh, have yeah. everybody go, dude, I've got no idea what you're talking about. Just where, where do you want me to walk? I don't, I've got yeah. no idea. I got nothing. And do you have that, and do you have that whole set live for the whole time in case you happen to turn around and you need to see the fire out the window the door or are you shooting all the stuff outside and all those little yeah. pieces that have to be backwards and forwards and then going inside to this one hallway the back like i mean the, the 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 breakdown the shot list breakdown uh is i don't know if i don't know if nolan is like a obsessive shot list lister he must come up with stuff on the fly but, but they but Jason, imagine if you walk up, right? My theory of having this white bit of foam core that you stick up storyboard frames yeah. just doesn't work because you'd have a shot no, no, where you'd have a guy all. punching another guy in the head and you'd be like, that's <laughs> great, Mike. 
Now, who's working forwards and who's working backwards yeah. <laughs> and who's like upside down and who's inside out? Yeah. And you'd be like, uh, I've got no idea. I thought yeah. there was a really fun a fun sequence too was the one earlier on in the film with the, the young uh, French uh, sort of Q character in the, yeah. the lab, the Clements Ooh, uh, yeah. Posse or whatever the- can, I'm not Her explaining her the bullet for the first time. Yeah, and the the the, the lead lined glove and the the items that are uh, able to come off the off the table or that you can sort of move or push based on you know the fact that you previously dropped them or or threw them or whatever. And I thought that sequence had a again like an interesting small scale intimacy about explaining some of the um, conceits and some of the kind of quote unquote rules of this. Mm -hmm. um, mechanic that they were going to employ. And at one point while I was watching this, I'm, I'm trying the whole time to sort of, you know, puzzle the Nolan mind to try to understand like, what is this that's happening? What does this mean? And I actually went so far as at one point watching this movie, I'm sitting there and I'm actually thinking, I'm imagining that this entire movie is really just a metaphor for frames of celluloid moving through a motion picture camera and that they eventually then go through a chemical bath and then through uh, an editorial process and eventually are projected, you know, in some sort of like popcorn infused haze, right? Like, and I'm trying to imagine <laughs> like, okay, so the characters are really wooden and emotionless because they're not characters. They're just individual frames or strips of film, you know, like, and I start trying to yeah. sort of look at the whole movie as a, as, is it really just yeah. a metaphor for the process of filmmaking, you know? And I think that's kind of one thing that has been talked about with Nolan in the past in some of his other projects. And it does feel like there's a reading of the film that could be interpreted in that way, where it's not really about, and in, even down to the fact that they refer to our John David Washington as the protagonist, right? He's a nameless yeah. character. And so there mm -hmm. is an element of, of a reading of this film, I think that's it's really cool and interesting in that it's a it's it's sort of an exercise almost in a, a deconstructed well, kind of uh, metaphor. Then, then your metaphor would extend to the 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 film would basically be also about editing, where you're rocking. Yeah. you know, if you because he does photochemical finishes, and you're sitting on a flatbed and you're rocking scenes and watching people go forward and backwards sure. and everything, and you know, if on a flatbed, you could extend it to that. You know, certainly. Yeah, you could see where some and, of those, and those you would then hear the audio going right and that that exercise of like engaging with the medium in a formal way as a as a as an artist as a filmmaker uh that that engagement you could see where it triggers like an investigation of your own like creative process right and to then to try to create a narrative and a story mm -hmm. around that like and including in it all the visual effects, both practical and digital and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I, that was just part of what I started thinking watching it. And it was, it was good. It was like a good sort of like rat hole to go down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I have a question for you, Mike. And I don't know if, I don't know what the answer to this is. You probably do. Is there anything in this film that is purely CG? Uh, well, obviously the sales we already discussed in the, on the, on the, yeah. But, but I mean, like as a shot, um, I don't think yeah. so. I, I'm pretty... like the car flipping backwards and forwards on the thing that he ends up in the second time oh, and the first right. time. You don't know who's in. Is that car CG? I don't think so. I think that's real. That's yeah. crazy. that's a great sequence too. Like where yeah. there's the forward and backward movement of the cars, mm -hmm. the car wheels spinning backwards, like and kicking yeah. and drawing dust 
to the wheel and then mm-hmm. going forward. Like that stuff was so. I, I, I found I found the second version of that sequence to be the more engaging mm-hmm. one, and I think it's probably rightly so designed that way because the first way is they're just trying to get rid of the case and oh he does and you know the the thing on top of the thing and you know it was it was a little mechanical moving forward but then you got the emotional part of it going the other way right uh i feel like but then you guys uh, to yeah, me just as a side note don't you guys feel like it's good in a movie when like they did the heist well like the problem is set up you can't stop the vehicle and it's got a tracker the whole time and there are people in front and behind it all rodeo it in and, you know, like it's only a brief thing, but they go like, and you go, well, that's impossible. How could you possibly heist that? And then they go, oh, we're going to use the whatever. Like it's like any of those sting type movies, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. And then they sort of set up the premise that you as the audience, it's like a magic trick, right? Like obviously you can't cut that person in half, but you're going to do it. How are you going to do it? And then you see them do it and you go, okay, that was a clever solution. And how hard must it be to come up with an original version of that that hasn't been done in some other movie, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. and and it's easy to just move past that. But like, honestly, if you were like the writers sitting around, you know, with your feet up on the desk, like, okay, they have to heist this thing from a moving vehicle and in a way that no one's ever done before. And they're like, hey. and we're going to do it practically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and there weren't even any of those fire trucks in that part of the world where they were filming. So they had to like either make or bring in that fire truck with the ladder right. thing. Cause that's like a local yeah. thing. But that being said, like I like as an audience, I just like it when somebody doesn't just say, well, we'll use the magnetic imaging that will automatically block all their phones and control them and yeah um i mean to the point that sorry kudos to i was just gonna say kudos like i mean i look i it is a totally unique and uh, you know original execution of you know maybe not a 100 percent original idea but like because i mean time travels you know the trope of many a film but but it's a, a fascinating and fun execution, and the approach to the visual effects is really dynamic and exciting. I do have to ask you guys though, what is with the ridiculous, like, awfully like horribly designed dingus that they refer to at the end of the movie as the algorithm? And it's like these like clunky, dumb machine parts that like form into this lame scepter that looks like it, you know, like a turd out of the Minecraft robot from Interstellar. Like what? Like it's just such a design <laughs> nightmare. Like what? What? That's so the I, I algorithm think this is the that one they're referring to is where, like this MacGuffin. Yeah, this is the one thing. place where where Christopher Nolan's lack of digital love is shown. Right? Anyone that was like a digital <laughs> like loved digital would never have introduced that thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like what I want to have thing? a physical manifestation of an algorithm. Yeah, you know we don't really kind of write stuff like that. You know that, don't you? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But in the future, yeah, it's like we'd a make Lego something that scepter. big and clunky. Like, wouldn't it <laughs> yeah. be like this big? Like, what? Yeah. Well, no, that I, was my I, other question. The the what was the use of the algorithm? The, the algorithm somehow interacted with just time in general. Like, I was I was a little confused about. It's the, the thing that drove of, the the reversal um, machines. The turnstiles. Oh, so without that, so you can't make the ju- turnstile thing. Yeah. Ah, see, that was very unclear to me. Yeah, there are little bits and pieces thing. like that where the connective tissue within the context of the script is script is 
it's a little hazy, but you know. I mean, I mean, the 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 thing you have in your favor is, well, they're doing it now. So clearly, in the future, at some point, they had to have done it. So yeah. problem solved. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. But I mean, then that's if you dismantle like- the physical, you dismantle the physical algorithm, but no one's bothered to like write it down anywhere, right? It's a physical yeah. <laughs> machine. Like, uh, yeah. that didn't make any but, sense. That was a strange No, it MacGuffin. doesn't make any sense. But then, yeah, it's it's difficult, isn't it? Because that whole thing about time travel, you know, like, it, okay, there's two things about time travel that have been seriously brilliant, though maybe the actual programs they're in are not uh, revered for being uh, major uh, contributions to our culture. So one was uh, Ted Nick and... Um, Bill's Excellent Bill Adventure, where they're just like, oh, yeah. so <laughs> I just hit a gun here before, but I knew you were going to hide a gun here, so I took the yeah. bullets out of the gun here. Yeah. But I knew that you would take the bullets out of the gun here, so I, yeah. So that one was uh, was good. And then the other one for me, which I probably said a hundred times on this show, but it's still my all-time favorite, and as you know, I'm a Red Dwarf fan, is mm-hmm. there a, they'd find a time machine in uh, deep space on the uh, Red Dwarf, and they go, oh, my God, brilliant. We can go back anywhere in time. Yeah, absolutely. Where do you want to? It's like, well, let's go back to 17th century France to Louis the Fourteenth, and so they like, you know, have this big debate, and it's a big comic sequence, and then they like hit the button, and ta-da! And all the effects happen, you know, lights flash, blah blah blah, and then Lister goes, didn't work, and uh, Crichton goes, yes, it did, sir. He goes, no, no, we're still in the middle of deep space, and he goes, yes, sir, we've travelled in time, not in space. We're exactly in the 14th century, but still in the middle of of nowhere. And it's like, well, what use is that? Well, now you're in the period of Louis the 17th. Well, why? Yeah. (laughs) It's like. That's a good one. Yeah. I I always thought that was like the the ultimate. uh, Yeah. 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 It's like spaceship. Space and time. Exactly. Space and time. Yeah. And and actually discovering a time machine that would do you no good whatsoever. (laughs) You're still stranded in the middle of nowhere. But anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, there are problems with time travel in any movie. And and I guess, uh, you know, there's always going to be like the that problem. I, can, I, like, can I bring up my, my, the most, the weirdest person you would assume to have made a very good time travel movie that doesn't have any holes, I don't think. Ooh. And that would be Richard Curtis, who... Four weddings, of, four, four weddings and a funeral, and yeah. Notting, Notting Hill, and all that. His movie about time with oh. Don Hall Gleason and and it does, it does have a huge fault. Okay, we'll talk about. We don't want to spoil it for anybody. But about time is one of my all time favorite films. I love that. But it I, is I, a I've, phenomenal film. Yes, for a for a guy who is not known for sci fi, who <laughs> wrote an original sci fi screenplay that's not based on a book. It's impressive. Yeah, Richard Curtis does a marvelous job. Yeah. All right. Anyway. Uh, okay. So, uh, was there any? Um, I've spoke about the sale, Jason. Was there any visual effect in the film that, or special effect slash visual effect that you sort of didn't feel worked for you that took you out of the film? I don't think so. I mean, given that it's almost all practical in some fashion, it has to have worked in the real world. Mostly. That's not necessarily true, though, right? Like, you can still have a thing that looks hokey because it was. Oh, we well, sure. That in Dune sure. Last week. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, there, I, I don't recall anything that really jumped out at me as being like, oh, that's weird. I mean, you know, the algorithm thing is a design choice. That's whatever. Uh, but like, you know, the turnstiles look cool. The all the backwards bullets and things like that, like backwards, all the backwards stuff worked for me visually. Uh, 
I, I don't recall. I'm trying to think. Usually I remember like, oh, I got to remember to say this one thing was like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. But like nothing really jumped out at me from an execution standpoint that I would say it, you know, from a visual effects standpoint or even special effects that really took me out of the film. I've got a horrible feeling that Matt's going to have something, Matt. No, you know, I was I was just thinking as Jason was saying that, like, you know, is there anything um, that really sticks out in my head. I mean, I think I've cited the things that I didn't really like about the movie or things that I thought were problematic. Um, I, I, I can't think of a particular sequence or a visual effect in, in the same way that Jason was saying that, that, uh, doesn't really work. I mean, I think the, the only thing I suppose, which I've mentioned already is there are a few bits and pieces where I feel like it's so difficult um, to mean in a meaningful way to have uh, an actor or an extra do a performative motion, even no matter how much you rehearse uh, backwards um, to, well, so that it can play back forward. Inertia uh, right? and gravity just aren't your friends, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's I mean... so, it's so difficult. And so I think in that really just in that big battle sequence, there's just a few bits and pieces that I that you could see like within the within the frame itself. You, there's a few little bits where there's like some dudes moving, you know, running together or marching or uh, moving with their guns or, or what have you. That you were like, hmm, hmm that, that looks weird, you know, because I'm I was watching it because it's so interesting watching these implosions moving backwards and rubble starting to like move and then yeah. like leap into the air and and uh, move back onto a structure. Like there's a there was a great mm -hmm. moment I thought actually that's really cool and it's a cool visual effect and it almost looks like it's it's really just straight up like backwards footage. I, I'm sure there's a little more going on in it, but where the rubble is moving and on the ground and it shoots up and there's a guy like in a hole yeah. in the building and it goes up and it, it sort of slams into mm -hmm. his body and pushes him back and it, it's like he died. Like, <laughs> But it's like, wait, did he die or he was dying right and now he's okay inside yeah. like it was kind of interesting because you can't really tell like what what was going on there but it was cool i mean yeah I, things like that i think were, were yeah, really they tease fun. that because they're like look out for the wall you know and then right. you're like well someone's gonna get it you know yeah and that stuff was really neat i mean i think there's a and i think to what you're saying mike the uh the i guess it was a a miniature right but where they did the implosion and explosion which is that is a comp Right. I mean, it yeah, must that be, is a visual. Yeah, it's a comp and it's well done. And it's yeah. in the it's a third size miniature, and it's uh in the back parts of it are in the back of other shots. Actually, it was so convincing, or rather, illusionarily, it's an illusion, right? Because it's a third scale, so you think mm -hmm. it's whatever way that it is. Yeah, but yeah. um, yeah, yeah. I mean, what about you? Is there anything that, uh, like, aside from the sailboat thing that we've talked about, is there anything that you saw, Mike, that in the two times you saw it on the giant screen that jumped the out? The only thing you? I would say is the explosion at the, um, it's a grading problem. The explosion at the uh, end of the opening sequence at the opera, as their exterior uh, walking away the and the explosion yeah. happens. The, the dynamic range of that explosion seems oddly wrong to me. It's like it should be more flashy and less contained inside the dynamic range of a balanced shot. Like it feels to me. Now, I don't know how they could have done that because it was a grade that was notionally done. Uh, they played with it electronically but did it as a chemical grade. 
but it just didn't quite maybe that was the materials they used for the explosion but it just felt to me like uh i sort of expected an explosion from my limited experience of being on set when we've blown stuff up that it just it's always more of a flash and less of a a lower light intensity uh, but well, it's like a gasoline but, explosion that they show in the yeah. film, as opposed to like a concussive, like yeah. uh, blast. But, right, Mike. I've been on set with you at thirty-two ten when we did a bunch of those explosions. Yeah, and that's in a dark room. This yeah. is in a fully daylight yeah, scenario. True. So the the and it's like gray cement, which would probably suck up a bunch of luminance and things. It didn't. It didn't jump out at me. What I loved about that shot is the debris hitting the van that far away as they're as they're like run 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 and they go in so, there's like rocks going like conk, 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 you know hitting the so so matt i gotta tell you a story so jason and i were shooting at uh at your at the old ilm studios and uh we mm-hmm. had a guy there who was a um an armorer and he had a, a machine gun right and just to show you how inept i am at guns and so i was saying <laughs> <laughs> to, we were filming and i was like hey let's like uh, maybe get a shot of like the uh the brass uh, cartridge just kind of hitting the ground and then maybe like, you know, sort of bounce in slow motion. We could shoot him like on the red camera at a high speed. Me thinking this was a good idea. And this guy's like, uh-huh. It's like a nice guy, right? It's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. He goes, yeah, hmm, not really. And, and I was like, why not? And we had headphones on. It was all safe. It was all done properly and professionally, right? And uh, so we had like, remember that, like we had like the brain trust, kind of the row of desks, Jason set up on yeah, one side yeah. and well away from that, like way away from that, we had all the guns properly policed and properly done. This oh, is yeah, not it was like, goofing off. It was like 40 feet at least. Yeah. And 50 he's like, feet maybe. He's like, yeah, you're going to not want to stand there, Mike. Stand behind me over here. So I stand behind him. Anyway, let's fly with this machine gun. And I swear to God, the brass things, rather than falling at his feet, were hitting John Montgomery 40 feet yeah. over on the other side of the studio. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, yeah. oh, okay. <laughs> and he goes, yeah. yeah he got hit on gun- an arc. Like a- <laughs> exactly. Machine guns don't, uh, don't, you know, slowly feed bullets into the chamber and then eject them gently and they fall at your feet. They yeah. like hurl out of the machine. And I was like, right, right. Yeah. Note to self, yeah. yeah. It's like yeah. two machine yeah, not, guns in one. Yeah, not, well, not the the movie style where it's slow motion and the casings are like dripping out of the side. Down onto the... their feet. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. If you were standing 40 feet off to the right-hand side and I think we were going to get an umbrella over there to stop them from being showered in brass. Yeah. Hot brass at that. It was like yeah. ridiculous. Even though yeah. it was very safe and don't, don't get me wrong. But yeah, uh, I just some completely inept with guns, dear listeners. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. It was daylight. So, and and again, like, how could I? It's in it interesting because, like, maybe what we're hitting here is my cinematic language versus my reality language. That like maybe they yeah. captured reality, and my cinematic language is not thus. But I think the other thing is it's also IMAX. So, what's the dynamic range on a 70 mil frame versus yeah. like super 35? Right. I mean, your plate, your your negative space is massive. But I've I've been on set where we blew up a building, um, uh, you know, like like the building blew out towards us, and we were all standing outside. It was again properly properly filmed and safe and stuff. And I guess the thing that really happens is that I wince at the explosion sound, and I I have an inability to to differentiate my visceral experience of being at one of those on set explosions. I mean, I'm not saying I close my eyes because like I'm being a sissy and, and just kind of like hiding, but you know, like it's just so, as you said, mm-hmm. concussive 
that my memory of it is more of a flash, more of a thing that hits you than something that I was watching in that sh- in that movie where it was felt like it was like a ball of fire that was sort of well contained. I, I'm friends with a lot of bands that play arenas and stuff like that. And I've been side stage or backstage when the pyro goes off. Yeah. And I'm again at a safe distance. And when a flame bar goes off, you think that someone like shot you in the face with a flamethrower, yeah. like, yeah. and it's really far away. Yeah. Like, so, you know, it's a, uh, all that physical stuff is, is totally different. I think to your point about being on set with an explosion. Uh, Yeah. Anyway. I don't know. anyway, that so that would be my only point that uh, I was yeah. very surprised when Andrew said to me that they'd done that as a uh, chemical uh, color timing because for yeah. me, I mean, this is like saying uh, you're not going to move the camera with a dolly. Like I feel like that's a piece of technology being able to grade a film that in no way mm-hmm. takes away from the cinematic experience and yet uh, removing it from the table of things that I can use seems such a compromise. I'm not saying that Nolan's right, uh, uh, wrong, and I'm right, but just to me, that would be like a, you know, um, a step too far in wanting to be a purist. I find yeah. respect for doing things in camera, but not not taking advantage of modern grading seems, you know, weird. Yeah, it seems. Yeah, I mean, granted, you'd never tell. I mean, they no. look fantastic, right? I mean, everyone's. Yeah. Again, everyone's at their game. Hoyt Van Hoytema shot the shit out of this movie. You know what I mean? Well, like, he can shoot the shit out of anything, can't he? I mean, he's yeah, freaking good DOP. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, that's probably getting us to the end of the show, unless there's something else that you guys wanted to hit on. I I just adored this film, but I, partly because I, I didn't see many films around this time, so not many big budgets. Um, are you guys going to get to see like Wonder Woman or anything in a cinema, or is that out too? Christmas Day nope. it comes out on HBO Max. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can I can say right as of now, no movie theater in New York City has really been open since March. Wow. Yeah. There have been there have been movie theaters in Jersey that uh like a friend of mine went and saw Tenet in, you know, IMAX there. Uh, you know, where there was like two people in the theater, you know, obviously safe. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think New York City has any plans of opening movie theaters anytime soon, sadly, because I would love to have seen this movie as it was intended on a giant seven. I mean, I saw Interstellar on the largest IMAX screen in in the country, which is at Lincoln Plaza in Manhattan and twice in the same seat, actually, and uh, and loved it. Right. Like, I mean, adored sitting in that massive screen seeing it as it was meant to be seen don't get me wrong yeah there might so, be a few exceptions but i think most of us at least here in stateside in the u.s are going to be uh, in most parts of the country will not be able to go to a legit movie theater for the foreseeable future it's hard to envision a day and date where uh that's going to seem uh, possible and where I think people are, it's hard to imagine people feeling comfortable doing that, even when we're told it's safe to go. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I, you know, I, I'm sorry about that. And I apologize 
for even suggesting. That's I, I mean, yeah, fault, obviously, Mike. when I think about it, no, no, but I, when I, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, when I said it, it was a stupid thing to say because obviously you guys are suffering tremendously with a very high uh, uh, incidence rate. But, um, but you know, uh, I'm sorry about that. Um, but I, poor I guess man, poor uh, management rate, I would say, <laughs> more than anything. You know, I mean, yeah. it's really just hopefully, epic failure of uh, response on the part of the the, the government. So. So to finish on a more positive note, I'd really be interested in your perspective. I was going to ask you this, guys, earlier. Um, I think Christopher Nolan's an incredibly important filmmaker, and uh, to your point, Jason does take risks and does like has not just made you know Batman Begins again, and Batman Begins mm-hmm. a third time. Um, so, so he's made a lot of I think really significant films. Be that as it may, that he may have exposition problems, Jason. Could you? What is your kind of top one or two Nolan films? They're not in any way, shape, or form like all the same. What what has really appealed to you personally? Um, I mean, I there's a lot of things I like about them differently. I really liked Inception. I really liked Interstellar. Uh, I really liked The Prestige. I loved the book. I had read it. You know years before the movie or however, you know, at least two years before the movie came out. I, I, it's hard to rank them. I mean, and maybe I wouldn't put the third Batman movie at the top of the list. So certainly the second Batman movie is a, is like a stellar film on all levels. Right. So like, I mean, insomnia, it's a remake. It's pretty good. You know, like it holds up. It's good. Um, Memento. I love uh, I, I like all of his movies generally. I have script issues with them, but that's that's I have script issues with a lot of people. It's not I'm not picking on him specifically. I I want people to do better. Not that my opinion matters really much in that from that perspective because they're them and I'm me. It, but, it matters to us, Jason. Well, I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I, I again, I think he's a he is a he is a stellar filmmaker and. I would put all I would watch any of his movies if I was on cable and they came on and be like, oh, that's cool. I'll watch that. Like if, you know, you've, as you're perusing, you know, and you you happen on something, which is rare these days because everyone sort of defaults to streaming and choosing the thing. Uh, I do like the happenstance of like, oh, look, the deer hunter's on. I'm going to watch that for the millionth time. Um, so I love this. One of my favorites. Um, and so. It's hard to say, uh, Matt, to, to put them in a list. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, you know, I think Nolan is a, he's an interesting filmmaker. I, I think hands down, I think his best film is the prestige. And I think it's his best really? film. The reason I think it's his best film is because it's, it's the only film I think he's made that has any real rich, meaningful character development. <laughs> I really just think character is not yeah. what he does. I, I would love to, I, I think he's great at these big action set pieces and um, he creates these kind of uh, big screen visuals that are, that are dynamic and fun to watch. And, you know, I'll, I've seen all his movies. So there's not a movie that I haven't seen. Um, so it's not like I'm <laughs> resistant to his stuff. I, I just think I, I would really love to see him uh, at some point in his career, like take all of those uh, skills that he's amassed uh, and many skills that he's mastered and apply some of those skills to creating a really deep, 
rich character driven drama that's like got emotion in it he's a he's a very i think he's a very cold emotionless filmmaker it seems that his his i i get the impression from the way that he deals with characters and certainly in this movie we're talking about the the one real female character that's you know even spends more than you know five minutes on screen the elizabeth debecky character she's you know she's really just you know ornamental like she's kind of treated as a damsel in distress for throughout the whole movie she doesn't have a huge amount of agency within the context of the film and you don't really care you know like oh my my son my you know it's like who cares like i don't care about you i don't know anything about you you know and i think it would be so interesting if he could create a, a, a film that had that kind of componentry to it where uh we could really care about the characters and care about their emotions their jeopardy and um like why why we're watching them i would i would love to see that because i think you know that's the piece i think that he's for me that's what he's missing as a filmmaker um and that's an important piece i think of of cinema for for me as a as a cinephile that's something i really care a lot about i'm i'm going to 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 solve your problem which doesn't involve christopher nolan but it does involve elizabeth debicki or whatever i can't remember her last name uh, if you want to see her in a very deep, meaningful, artistic uh, film where her character is very well explored, is a movie called Burt Orange Heresy yep. with her, Mick Jagger, and Clay's Bang, yep. the guy who was in the new uh, Netflix movie, Netflix Dracula. That is a great movie, and she gets a lot of good character yeah, development. Yeah, she, I'm not. Movie. It's nothing against her. I think she's a fine. No, no, actor. I'm not saying she's a fine I'm, actor. Like, I, I think, no, I'm saying if I admit I saw that movie just to see Mick Jagger, but yes, I remember <laughs> she was in the Night Manager with Hugh Laurie, which was a short yeah. mini oh, right. series, and she was great. Widows that, also, yeah, widows. Yeah, so, also. yeah, widows too. So I'm gonna just come down. I mean, look, I think many of our listeners would agree with Matt. I I tend to think our listeners would side with Matt more than me on many of these points because I think you guys are very clever <laughs> and intelligent and have better taste. But for me, like ever since Memento, I've just been, take my money already. There's a Nolan, Tia, take my money. I'll, I'll buy it twice. So yeah, Memento is the film that I just think is a masterpiece. For nine million bucks to make that, that early in his career, that's that, mm -hmm. that I know it's uh, an exercise in engineering, but then, you know, I like, good engineering and it's a exercise in editing and i think i like good editing and yeah it's, it's great an exercise yeah, in just... you're the guy with the phd in math right so, <laughs> it's not in math but thank you but yeah um so so yeah i just find that just to be it was for me an extraordinary moment of cinema to just witness that film and think like anyone mm -hmm. could have made this film like it was not Oh well, yeah, sure. You had two hundred million dollars. Well, yeah, if I'd had two hundred million dollars, I could have made this film. Like, I, I, uh, mm -hmm. I'm not saying I could have made that film, but like anyone theoretically could have made that film, and yet no one, you know, ever did it. Um, and also, I mm -hmm. really think Guy Pearce is great. I think he's just terrific on screen. Oh, and he's against a, Matt's he's point, I always... feel like I really cared about him a lot in that film. I cared about him immensely. I felt really sorry for him at times, uh, in a way that. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's my thing. But we've we've run way over time. So can I just 
thank you guys again so much for talking about this film. Jason, um, you've doing all sorts of interesting things. I did actually go back and find a photo of you in um, in uh, Monsters of Men and stuck it up on the uh, show notes. Oh, uh, you nice. as I apologize for not noticing it was you. I don't know why I didn't oh, recognize okay. you, uh, but I found the frame and there it is on the website. If you want to see oh, you starring in that action flick, it's on last week's. Uh, Oh yes, starring in starring in one scene, yeah. Starring in yes, the uh, the well, or I think you scenes. make the film really. Yeah. I think I really now oh, looking well. back on it. it Thanks. Was, yeah, and so it was, in, in uh, anticipation, it was really, I'll tell you, it was really great to shoot Mike Goldman. So will that, will so Matt be your plus one at the uh, Oscars, or I guess you won't be able to go to the Oscars for your, for <laughs> yeah, your supporting yeah, actor? Yeah, VES like. awards. Well, well VES awards go. maybe. Yeah, go. I get a free <laughs> so, ticket. Or no, I guess it's not free, but I get a ticket to that one every year. Yeah, I'll be your plus one, Matt. Yeah, there you go. So, Jason, uh, where can people find you, and what do you, you know? What, what do you want to uh, flag in your current sphere of um, nothing? Nothing right now other than have, trying to have a nice, calm holiday and enter the new year with some momentum. And, uh, and you know, the Diamond Bros, as usual, uh, my brother and myself. And, you know, that's it. We're, we're, we out here, as my friends like to say. And Matt, we posted, uh, now is it 8111 or 8111? It's 8111, which I now yep. realize I probably should have put a hyphen in between the two numbers, but whatever. <laughs> so 8111 yeah, 81 is, uh, 81 the link is in the is show my... notes from last week. Yep. Yeah. Thanks for putting that in there. I really appreciate it. And it's it's been amazing, like doing, I've never, you know, other than this show, I've never done a, a show before. And it's really fun, like seeing sort of uh, all the analytics from it. It's fascinating. Like, I'm it's a so good show curious as to like how that really is it is that real like I, the numbers are really positive and i've got um i think now i've got uh like 14 shows recorded and i already have for uh next week which is amazing because next week is the week of the christmas holiday i already mm -hmm. have three more interviews scheduled two on monday and one on tuesday and wow. then Right after this following week, I have four more scheduled. So I, I mean, I've got episodes already going into April, which is so Look, cool. And it's it's really kind of uh, of George Lucas to take time out of his schedule to sit down with you like that. I think that's great. <laughs> <mate>. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe maybe someday he would. You never know. But it's really fun. It's been it's been great fun talking to all these old colleagues, and um, and the response has been really great. And I think what's so just so fun and so fascinating is how much working in, in this industry, um, you know, regardless of whether you were at ILM or some other facility, like the process of this kind of technical, um, problem, creative problem solving is so, um, intense and so deeply involved. I really think that once you do it for a number of years, like it really rewires your brain in a really exciting way that leads to a host of other kinds of explorations and avenues. And it's been really fun hearing how uh, I think that DNA is something that everybody kind of walks away with. Well, as I say, uh, there are links in uh, last week's show notes and you can find that on wherever you listen to a uh, good uh, podcast. And, um, and I just obviously uh, flagged the stuff over on uh, FX guide. And um, recently, uh, as in like a couple of days ago, by the time you hear this, uh, 
we had reason to post a piece on uh, virtual production that I was involved with making with the um, Australian Cinematographer Society. So it's basically about virtual production for DOPs. And uh, I didn't make it, but I was part of it. And uh, I do actually recommend it. It's quite a good, it's like a half an hour long um, piece. But uh, if you're interested in virtual production, I know many listeners are, you might want to uh, check that out over at uh, FX Guide. Uh, made with our friends. Uh, but I, I do like cinematographers. I like hanging out with cinematographers and uh, it's great fun doing that work. And Tom Gleason, who's not normally in front of the camera much, but who's done some work with us, uh, was spearheading that and he um, invited me in and Tom's a great guy. He was um, the head DP on Survivor for a while uh, and mm. just a really great guy. Anyway, so um, yeah, you'll hear Tom's voice when you when he's interviewing me. Uh, he's the voice off camera. Uh, great guy. Anyway, Thanks so much, guys, for being with us. And uh, we look forward to you listening to this uh, again from now backwards. Uh, until next time, I was and I will be and once again have been uh, Maxine Montier. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.